Christmas, you filthy animals. People, people in this day and age are brainwashed and programmed like a computer at being nothing more than puppets. This nation, this country is founded in violence. Violent delights tend to have violent ends. It's Madness is something rare in individuals, but in groups, people, and ages, it is a rule. Killing is killing, whether done for duty, profit, or fun. Men murdered themselves into this democracy. You're good at reading your script, Richard, but you're not much in answering my direct questions. A lot was made that you're a devil worshiper. Do you worship the devil? Have you ever studied Satanism? There are different sects of Satanism. Have you studied, just yes or no, have you studied yes, Satanism? Yes, I have. Are you, are you a worshiper of the devil? No comment. Come on, Richard. We're I can tell you a little bit about Satanism. Well, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you got to say then. It is undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. It is power, power without charity. Well, Satanist admits to being evil. You admit to being evil, Richard? We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? I'm asking you the questions, my friend. <laughs> yes, I am evil. Not 100%, but I am evil. Evil has always existed. The perfect world most people seek shall never come to pass, and it's going to get worse. <sighs> the great epochs of our life is when we gain the courage to rebaptize our e evil qualities as being our best qualities. I think most humans have in them the capacity to, co to commit murder. Uh, it is no, not because... Hold me down, Richard. Uh, they, they choose not to, not because they are morally superior, as they so commonly claim, but because they are imprisoned in a way of responsibilities, commitments, now, beliefs, and sentiments. Richard, and that would render murder an absurd gamble or ridiculous yeah. self-destruction. Salutations, how you doing? What's going on, everybody? This is Justin with another video brought to you by Lights Out Radio. I hope everybody's having a great day, a great evening, a great morning, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for hanging out with me for a minute. And I hope everybody stays safe for New Year's. I hope everybody's got big ambitions for 2021. I know this show does. I know it's going big places, doing big things. Remember, we're going to be doing uh, shows with interviews starting at the new year. So that'll be big, along with a few other aspects we're going we're gonna to bring into the table to make this a really diverse show. So you guys stay tuned for that. I'm not really going to say too much more about that just because I want to keep it on, on the hush until it unfolds. But stay tuned for that. It's 2021. This is how Lights Out Radio is going to do it, baby. Join the family. So anyway, let's jump into the topic of the video, right? So we're going to be talking about Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker, a.k.a. the Valley Intruder, and a little less known but was widely coined by the media, uh, what do they call him, the, uh, the Walk-In Killer. So let's go ahead and jump into the video, yeah. Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29th, 1960. He was the youngest of Julian and Mercedes Ramirez's five children. His father, Julian, a Mexican national and former Juarez Mexico policeman, who later became a laborer on the Santa Fe Railroad, was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in physical abuse. A 12-year-old Richard, or Richie as the family called him, was strongly influenced by his older cousin, Miguel Ramirez, 
a decorated U.S. Army Green Beret combat veteran who often boasted of his gruesome exploits during the Vietnam War. He shared Polaroid photos of his victims, including Vietnamese women he had raped. In some of the photos, Mike posed with the severed head of a woman he had abused. Ramirez had begun smoking marijuana at the age of 10, bonded with Miguel over joints and gory war stories. Miguel taught his young cousin some of his military skills, such as killing with stealth. Around this time, Ramirez began to seek escape from his father's violent temper by sleeping in a local cemetery. That's one way to find some, some quiet time, I guess, right? Ramirez was present on May 4th, 1973, when his cousin Miguel fatally shot his wife Jesse in the face with a 38 caliber revolver during a domestic argument. After the shooting, Ramirez became sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers. Later that year, he moved in with his older sister Ruth and her husband Roberto, an obsessive peeping Tom who took Richie along on his nocturnal exploits. <laughs> Welcome to the family. Ramirez also began using LSD, acid, you know, whatever you want to call it, and cocaine and cultivated an interest in Satanism. Miguel was found not guilty of Jesse's murder by reason of insanity and was released in 1977, after four years of incarceration at the Texas State Mental Hospital. His influence over Ramirez continued. The adolescent Ramirez began to meld his burgeoning sexual fantasies with violence, including forced bondage and rape. While still in school, he took a job at a local Holiday Inn, where he used his passkey to rob sleeping patrons. His employment ended abruptly after a hotel guest returned to his room to find Ramirez attempting to rape his wife. Although the husband beat Ramirez senseless at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple, who lived out of state, declined to return to testify against him. Ramirez dropped out of Jefferson High School in the ninth grade, and at the age of 22, he moved to California where he settled permanently. Now, I also found um, uh, an interview, an older interview, from one of Ramirez's uh, so-called childhood friends. And this is what he had to say. I did start seeing something going wrong with R Ricky Ramirez. I think what really messed him up was the acid. He would do a lot of acid. The stealing, you know, I noticed the stealing and then started as a peeping thumb and things like that. Ramirez's passion for burglary earned him the nicknames of Ricky the Thief and Fingers. But Eddie knew Ramirez had other serious problems when he was fired from a local hotel. He said he was fired, he was dismissed due to the cause that uh, he, uh, he had tried to molest them, two little kids that were going up, up the elevator. His first documented murder was on April 10th, 1984, where he murdered a nine-year-old girl in the basement of the hotel where he was living in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. He raped and beat the girl before stabbing her to death and hung her body from a pipe. This was not initially identified as being connected to the subsequent crime spree. In 2009, Ramirez's DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. In 2016, officials disclosed evidence of a second suspect identified through a DNA sample retrieved from the scene, who is believed to have been present at the murder. Authorities have not publicly identified the suspect, described as being a juvenile at the time, and have not brought charges due to the lack of evidence. Now, I've found crime after crime after crime, like detailed reports. So I'm not going to go through them all, or I'd be on here all day, and this would be like a three-hour video, so let's not do that. But I am going to go through a couple. Let's just leave it at the fact that Richard Ramirez was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 
five counts of attempted murder, 11 counts of sexual assault, and 14 counts of burglary. He was sentenced to 19 death sentences. On June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Janine Vinsau was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed, and her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Ramirez's fingerprints were found on a mesh screen he removed to gain access through an open window. And then on March 17, 1985, just two days after my birthday, Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her garage. She survived when the bullet ricocheted off the keys she held in her hands as she lifted them to protect herself. Inside the house was her roommate, Dale Okazaki, 34, who heard the gunshot and ducked behind a counter when she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen. When she raised her head, he shot her once in the forehead, killing her. Within an hour of the Rosemead home invasion, Ramirez pulled 30-year-old Veronica Yu out of her car in Montgomery Park, California, shot her twice with a 22 caliber handgun, the same one from the uh, earlier thing, and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The two murders and attempted third in a single day attracted extensive coverage from news media, who dubbed the curly-haired attacker with bulging eyes and wide-spaced rotting teeth the walk-in killer and the Valley Intruder. But he did use a variety of, a wide variety of weapons, including handguns, knives, a machete, a tire iron, and a hammer. And also the time frame of his crimes is, I mean, he went from what, April 1984 to like the end of August 1985. So, I mean, he had a wild run, you know what I mean? That's a lot of crimes. And the wild thing about all the investigation at the beginning of this, before they caught him, was a lot of the FBI and everybody else that was on the case, they thought there was multiple killers because there had never been something like this before. There had never been a serial killer like this before. He didn't target anybody specifically. There was no, if you're a blonde, middle-aged woman, you know, watch your back. There was none of that. There was no, well, he mainly goes after prostitutes like Jack the Ripper and Samuel Little and shit like that. There was none of that. He went after guys, women, children, old, young. He didn't care. He just killed to kill. But I will say that um, March 27th, 1985, Ramirez murdered 64-year-old Vincent Zazara and Zazara's 44-year-old wife, Maxine, using an attack style that would become a pattern for the killer. The husband was shot first, then the wife was brutally assaulted and stabbed to death. In this case, Ramirez also gouged out Maxine Zazara's eyes. After this, a full-scale police operation yielded no concrete results. And Ramirez repeated his attack pattern on pensioners William and Lily Doy in May 1985. Over the next few months, his murder rate escalated, claiming another dozen victims in a frenzy of burglary, assault, and brutal violence, complete with satanic rituals. The Los Angeles Police Department responded by putting together a dedicated task force with the FBI stepping in to assist. The relentless media and police pressure, aided with descriptions from his surviving victims, forced Ramirez to leave the LA area that August. He journeyed north to San Francisco, where he took two more victims, Peter and Barbara Pan, on August 17th. His unmistakable MO, complete with satanic symbolism, meant that the Valley Intruder moniker was no longer applicable. The press quickly coined a new name, the Night Stalker, as most of his assaults took place at night in his victims' homes. Now, his actions on his final night of terror on August 24, 1985, 
soon led to his capture. First, he was spotted outside a Mission Vejo home where he unwittingly left a footprint before the witness took note of his car and license plate. Later, after Ramirez raped another woman at her home and shot her fiance, the victim provided a detailed description of her assailant who had forced her to swear her love for Satan. So Inez Erickson is the one that gave the detailed description, the one, the woman he raped, um, gave a detailed description to the cops and police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprint left at her house. Um, the stolen car that he took from the house was found on August 28th in Wilshire Center, Los Angeles, and police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car clean of his prints. The print was positively identified as belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas, with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Law enforcement officials decided to release to the media a mugshot of Ramirez from a December 12, 1984 arrest photo for auto theft, and the Night Stalker finally had a face. At the police press conference, it was announced, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide, end quote. On August 30th, 1985, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother. Unaware that he had become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across California. After failing to meet his brother, he returned to Los Angeles early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus and into a convenience store in East Los Angeles. After noticing a group of elderly Mexican women fearfully identifying him as El Matador or the killer, Ramirez saw his face on the front pages on the newspaper rack and fled the store in a panic. After running across the street, the Santa Ana Freeway, he attempted to carjack a woman but was chased away by bystanders who pursued him. After hopping over several fences and attempting two more carjackings, he was eventually subdued by a group of residents, one of whom had struck him over the head with a metal bar in the pursuit. The group held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him until the police arrived and took him into custody. Now that's kind of cool that everybody came together and like, oh shit, that's the dude, and went after him. I like that. You can call it vigilante justice or whatever if you want to, but sometimes it works better than the people that are supposed to do it anyway. So let's jump into that. And this is the footage from that when the officers arrested him after he was beat down by the by the neighborhood people. And this really was a shit show of a trial. I mean, it was just a circus. There was so much going on, and Ramirez didn't help. He was always yelling in court and everything else. But uh, jury selection for the trial began on July 22nd, 1988. At his first court appearance, Ramirez raised a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan. On August 3rd, 1988, the Los Angeles Times reported that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside and intensive searches were conducted on people entering. And also one thing I found kind of weird about this case is the court or the prosecutor, DA, whoever, gave Ramirez a list of lawyers to choose from. 
So he ended up getting two other lawyers. And there was a big debacle about that. At one point, the judge didn't want to let them um, be the lawyers, be his attorneys. And there was a big thing about that. And we'll play some of that footage right here. ...to approve lawyers who can be assigned to take court-appointed cases. We certainly don't think we're inexperienced just because we only have a few years of, of, of practice. The, the gentleman standing here up in front of Mr. Ramirez really had no standing before the court. I mean, one point it got so bad, he walked out of the courtroom and just called everybody parasites. <laughs> The subsequent trial turned into one of America's most notorious courtroom dramas, punctuated by continual outbursts from Ramirez. And on August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. The jury was terrified, as they could not help wondering whether Ramirez had somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell and whether he could reach other jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for Singletary's death as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. The alternate juror who replaced Singletary was too frightened to return to her home. On September 20th, 1989, Ramirez was convicted of all charges, 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial on November 7th, two months later almost, 1989, he was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber, although he asked for the electric chair. He stated to reporters after the death sentences, he stated to reporters this. Big deal. Death always went with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. Now, by the time of the trial, Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits. Beginning in 1985, Doreen Leoy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. In 1988, Ramirez proposed to Leoy, and on October 3, 1996, they were married in California's San Quentin State Pen. For many years before Ramirez's death, Leoy stated that she would commit suicide when Ramirez was executed. But however... Leoy eventually left Ramirez in 2009 after DNA confirmed he had raped and murdered a nine-year-old girl. By the time of his death, Ramirez was engaged to Christine Lee, a 23-year-old female writer. Now, what is it with you women? All right, please, please tell me, somebody please tell me, what is the sex appeal of serial killer? Like, you don't care if he rapes and kills little girls, like, you don't care. So what is it? Please, I would like to have a serious conversation about this with somebody. And by some estimates, he would have been in his early 70s before his execution was carried out due to California's lengthy appeals process. On August 7th, 2006, Ramirez's first round of state appeals ended unsuccessfully when the California Supreme Court upheld his convictions and death sentence. But on September 7th, 2006, the California Supreme Court denied his request for a rehearing. Ramirez had appeals pending until the time of his death. So Ricky Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California on June 7, 2013. He had also been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. At 53 years old, he had been on death row for more than 23 years. And there you go. He died of uh, he died at the age of 53 after sitting on death row for 23 years. He died of cancer. So there you go. That's the story of Richard Ramirez, aka the Night Stalker. And I hope you guys really enjoyed this video, man. Uh, plenty more to come. 
plenty more where this came from. I hope you guys love it. I hope you guys love life. Do good. Be blessed. I love y'all, man. This has been Lights Out Radio, baby. Yeah. You have now entered a very rare group of people in this country. You're in the, the ranks of Charlie Manson, Ted Bundy. You claim you didn't commit these murders, but you're right in there now as far as everybody else is concerned. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. Even psychopaths have emotions if you dig deep enough, but then again, maybe they don't. Do you have emotions, Richard? No comments.